Before we get started, a friendly warning. Murder Etc. is about to get complicated. In the first seven episodes of this show, Murder Etc. has introduced you to a lot of people. So far this season, I've said the names of nearly 80 different people. I know from experience, it can be hard to keep all of those people straight. I've spent years finding and drawing the lines between all of these characters, and then looking at the page and seeing a really confusing spiderweb. Having already invested a couple of decades of my life doing this, there's no reason it has to be confusing for you too. And that's why Murder Etc. has a companion website. As a lot of you have already said, it's making it easier to keep track of the characters, and that's exactly why the website is there. If you go to MurderEtcPodcast.com, you'll find a full list of every name mentioned on this show so far, and an explanation of why it's important. You'll find that list in the section called The File. We also have dozens of photos, portraits, mugshots, and candid pictures of the people you've heard speak, and the characters who have lived this story. Now, let me introduce you to a few people that are going to turn things upside down and sideways for a long time. Sometime after 11 o'clock on the first Friday of 1975, two men made a plan to get high atop a Greenville County building. If their plan worked, a lot of other people would get high too. Those two men climbed into a dark, wet sky up a building in Greenville County's Berea community. When they reached the top, only the roof below their feet separated them from shelves upon shelves of drugs. Uppers, downers, everything in betweeners, everything the pill-buying public could want. The two-man rooftop team opened up a knapsack and pulled out some tools. They cut a hole in the roof and they dropped into people's drugstore. It seemed like a brilliant plan. Their buddy was down the street watching for the cops. The men who'd climbed to the roof carried a climbing rope, tools, and a plan to steal all the drugs they could carry. Yeah, they'd accounted for everything, except the screaming, wailing, very inconveniently loud and conspicuous burglar alarm. And so those two men did the only thing they could think to do at the time, they ran like hell. Just four weeks later, on another mild January Friday, Greenville County's top drug enforcer, Lieutenant Frank Looper, took a bullet behind his left ear, only a few feet away from where his father suffered the same fate. The first person to publicly suggest the father and son died because of Lieutenant Looper's war on drugs was Looper's boss, the 1975 Greenville County Sheriff. Sheriff Cash Williams, Sheriff of Greenville County. Cash Williams, a first-time sheriff, barely halfway through his first term. In 1975, he was getting ready to start campaigning for the 76 election. And veteran Greenville broadcaster Lowell Fletcher interviewed Williams on the radio about Greenville County's criminal underworld. What is the most serious crime problem facing Greenville County? Well, it'd have to be larceny because that's the highest number of incidents that we have. And then breaking and entering is number two. How does uh, the, the drug situation enter into Greenville County and this area in general? I don't think our drug problem is as, is as bad as it was two and a half, three years ago. We've got uh, six men in the county drug department now, and they're good, energetic young men, and they don't mind getting out and busting a bunch of backsides to get the job done. And the pushers know we're here. That is Cash Williams 
talking about how drugs aren't as big a problem anymore. That's him talking in an interview given six months after somebody murdered his top drug lieutenant. That's him talking while that murder was still unsolved. It was a hard pill to swallow in a community where it really wasn't hard at all to find pills to swallow. Well, there was a friend of mine. That was, he was on the city police department. Melvin Croft is the type of guy who seems to know everybody in town. He met a lot of them while working for several decades in the funeral business. Croft met the rest working as a Greenville police officer through most of the 1970s, when, he says, he came to know and like a county cop named Frank Looper. On January 31, 1975, Croft and his partner were eating lunch just down the street from Looper's garage. It was a peach lunchroom there. And I saw these cars come, coming up down the street. I mean, on, on my car running about 100, about 100 miles an hour. So I called headquarters to find out what was going on. By that time, they come up with all points bulletins. Croft says he was outside Looper's garage within minutes, in time to see his friend Frank bleeding from the head, in time to see his friend on the way to die at the hospital. Because ambulance had already took Frank's father, and they was loading Frank up there. Melvin Croft was never a high-ranking cop, but he got around, and he knew people. Today, he still smiles at the suggestion that drugs weren't as big a problem in 1975. The street drugs were easy to see. The market for pills was no less profitable, but a lot easier to hide. Croft says that's because the buyers like to stay invisible. Pills held a special popularity and a select demographic of the drug marketplace. Those buyers who wouldn't be comfortable shopping on the West Greenville street market. Among the upper class, the ones that wouldn't go out here and send somebody out here to get them some cocoa, either heroin. Upper, upper class blacks and upper class whites. They left the drug thing to the middle and the dog and lower class. And because you're not out here buying nothing, there ain't no chance of you getting, getting damn caught. It kept them away from that element. See, they could just pop a pill and keep going. The pills. If you thought prescription drugs were only a 21st century problem, think again. In the 1970s, organized bands of thieves stole millions and millions of dollars worth of pills from Greenville County's doctor's offices, pharmacies, and huge drug manufacturing labs. On the night of January 3rd, 1975, People's Drugstore was the target. And the man with the knapsack on the roof, the one who ran like hell, you'll hear his name again and again, Jackie Delk. Oh, yes. He was a criminal all the way down to his bones. Jackie Delk's mugshots and prison photos would make a Hollywood casting agent drool. In one, Jackie looks like he could have been the Beach Boys drug dealer. In another, an extra in the Sons of Anarchy. And in another, the long-lost cousin of Spinal Tap bassist Derek Smalls. Mugshots aside, Melvin Croft says Jackie Delk was deep down in the marrow of his addled bones, a born crook. Jackie would do anything for money. Small jobs, big jobs, or whatever. You know. And if he had a big, big job, he had he had the contacts, you know. I mean, he was just he was just a criminal man. But Jackie had a lot of connection with a whole lot of people. Connections with a whole lot of people. That is a slightly more casual way to suggest Jackie Delk was part of a syndicate, an outfit, an organized band of criminals known informally as the Dixie Mafia. The mere words Dixie Mafia were almost as controversial as anything the criminals in it ever did. Because in the genteel pearl-clutching South, to suggest Greenville had an organized crime problem like the Yankees up north, well, that was worse than suggesting the community had a drug problem. 
Even today, Greenville County's longest serving sheriff, Johnny Mac Brown, can't quite bring himself to call the underworld of 1970s Greenville organized crime. Well, I don't know whether it was organized to what people see as organized crime. You know, two people rob a bank today and they talk about as organized bank robbery, you know. But these were people who were criminals. They were using their criminal skills. I'd come in and say, how many were robbed today? Because we'd have two or three robberies a day uh, back in those days. And Maybe it's a question of semantics, like asking, really, what is organized crime? Like asking, how long is a piece of string? Or maybe it's something else. Billy Wilkins was the prosecutor who sent Charles Wakefield, a 21-year-old from West Greenville, to death row for Frank Looper's murder. Wilkins says when he took office as the county's lead prosecutor in the weeks before Looper's murder, he walked into a real mess of criminals, criminal cops, and leaders who seemed not to give a damn. The great majority of law enforcement were good, honest, hardworking men and women. They were then and they are now. And they told me later on, we had no place to go. If we tried to report some deputy for staging a burglary of a pharmacy, breaking the window, going in to steal, and, and on the radio saying, I'll answer this call. He said, what do we do? We got nobody to turn to because the sheriff was not interested in doing anything. That was the environment of 1975 Greenville, South Carolina. The criminal underworld was winning, in part because people refused to admit it existed. I've lost count of how many newspaper articles I've read with 1970s daylines. But I'll never forget flipping through an edition of the Greenville News from January 1975 and running across a page of movie listings. American Graffiti had been out for more than a year, but it was still on at the drive-in. Burt Reynolds was starring in The Longest Yard. He was the hottest man in Hollywood after starring in Deliverance, a movie film just a couple counties away from Greenville. And right there in the Greenville News, with all of those listings, cuddled up next to a Holiday on Ice promotion, straight up, no questions asked, X-rated porn, at your choice of multiple outdoor drive-in or sit-down theaters. My Fair Baby, Wet Summer Nights, Mondo Topless, and several others that are just too uncomfortable to read aloud. And for the action-adventure crowd, Flesh Gordon, billed as sexier than the sound of music, more violent than love story, funnier than war and peace. And the locals bonus, if you went to the right porn drive-in, you could shop at a huge flea market because it's South Carolina, and folks here love their flea markets. Flip a few pages after the porn listings, and you'll find that in January 1975, Greenvillians were having trouble with their phone lines. Southern Bell blamed squirrels sharpening their teeth on the wires. Yes, really. On the same page as that article was an interview with Sheriff Cash Williams. Three weeks before the Looper murders, a reporter asked Sheriff Williams about the suggestion that the Dixie Mafia had moved into Greenville County. Williams scoffed at the idea and said, quote, we just have a bunch of amateurs. Of all the things Cash Williams said during his time as sheriff, that quote might have been the most ironic, ill-timed, and unintentionally hilarious. You might remember this quote from Prosecutor Billy Wilkins. There was a lot of criminal activity going on under the surface, and it was unchecked by law enforcement because there was too much, there was corruption in the law enforcement community. That allowed a lot of this lawlessness to go on. Indeed, even some of the members of law enforcement were involved in criminal activity. To understand just how entrenched the organized crime was, 
Take a peek back just a few days before Cash Williams called his county's criminals amateurs. Back to January 3rd, when Jackie Delk was part of a two-man team dropping through the roof of People's Drugstore. The third man, the lookout, he was listening too. He was listening to the police radio, his own police radio. The third man was Cash Williams County Deputy Danny Alexander. And before you start talking about bad apples, you should know Cash Williams didn't have just one bad one. Cash was well on his way to having his own damned orchard. So that's how we worked until Cash Williams come in, and then first thing I know, he's doing stupid shit too, you know. That is Leonard Brown, the burglar alarm man who caught more than a thousand burglars himself over the years. A man who says it wasn't at all uncommon to show up to an alarm call and discover the people responsible for a break-in were wearing badges. It had been happening even before voters elected Cash Williams, and it was one of Leonard Brown's many pet peeves. Ongoing annoyances, he refused to sit and watch. Longtime Greenville businessman Larry Smith remembers Brown's crusade against Bob Martin, the prior sheriff. I remember he called the local newspaper and radio stations, have them out there, and he'd go point out where a liquor store was. And Bob Martin, he already knew, but they would get him. You know, they let him operate so long because the people was going to get it somewhere anyway. Brown was a crusader, but he was a savvy one with an ulterior motive. In 1972, Leonard Brown offered himself as a candidate for sheriff, not necessarily because he wanted to be sheriff, but because he had learned from a friend it could be really good advertising for his alarm company. And I thought about it myself, and I said, look, don't matter if I win or lose, I'll win. Because I'll get known, and people will know me. And I go by and see them, and I tell them what I'm doing. Go to every store in Greenville County, everybody's place, and talk to everybody. And I did. I went to every damn, up and down every damn street, you know. Larry Smith watched the show from the wings, just as amused with the whole scene as Leonard Brown was. But I never will forget Leonard. He pointed all that thing out, and he just stirred the pot. He did not win sheriff. He did not get to be sheriff. No, Brown didn't get to be sheriff, but his campaign was a success. And I got enough business to last about four years. I'd done more business in four years than I'd ever done before. It just I had my shirt pocket full of people who wanted to see me. And I'd go by and I'd talk to them and put a system in. Every time I got through one, I'd go go another one. And I was really backed up for business. But Brown's crusade and candidacy came at a price. Yes, his rival Sheriff Bob Martin was gone, but Leonard Brown had cleared the way for Cash Williams to become sheriff. I, I felt like the next time after Cash was doing all this crooked shit that that's when it got him in. That's my <laughs> damn fault, see? Got a dumb ass in that's going to steal more than the others did, you know? I just thought to myself, now, what the hell have I done, you know? Before Williams took office, Brown said he'd worked out a deal with Sheriff Bob Martin. The crooked cops would get to keep on being crooked but not steal from places where Brown had burglar alarm contracts. Brown didn't have the same deal with Cash Williams. And after the election, Brown said the crooked deputies came back, but the honest ones didn't. And then he wouldn't answer your damn alarm call. He thought he was messing me up because he wouldn't send nobody out there. I just said to myself, this son of a is trying to do something to me. I don't know what the hell he's trying to do. If Leonard Brown is anything, he's a straight shooter. So he went straight to Cash Williams and asked him to do something about it. So I'd seen his deputies and I told him about his deputies being in the buildings and such stuff as that. And he'd just say, well, he's trying to start something on my good men, you know. I ain't starting nothing on your good men. I want you to do it. 
And that's after, after some of that, he finally got that Nachman guy. That Nachman guy was a man whose life story could be several different movies. 1974 was a tough year for Cash Williams, for reasons I'll have to explain another day. Suffice it to say, it seemed like Williams spent as much time defending himself as he did defending Greenville County. So just a few weeks before Frank Looper died, and even fewer weeks before Deputy Alexander and Jackie Delk pulled that job at the drugstore, first-term sheriff Cash Williams thought he'd found the solution to all the criticism, and he did what no South Carolinian in his right mind would do. He hired an outsider to come in and clean things up. And that sound you hear? That is trouble with a capital T, coming for cash with a capital C, courtesy of well, that Knockman guy. He's causing trouble, all right? He's causing trouble. He won't indict a bunch of them. That Knockman guy was Ivan Knockman. In December of 1974, Cash Williams introduced Knockman as his new internal affairs investigator. Knockman came from Miami, where his resume included jobs as a city investigator, a state investigator, a political aide, a constable, a magazine publisher, a freelance photographer, and candidate for Miami mayor. In Greenville County, Nachman's job was to look into the darker side of the sheriff's office. At least that's what Cash Williams told everyone. He brought him in, but he didn't know he was going to find nothing. He thought he would, he, nobody would tell him nothing. You know, that's what he thought. He thought all these deputies going to go along with me and not tell nothing. He brought him in for appearances. He found out the wrong things. Cash Williams and the rest of Greenville County soon discovered Ivan Nachman had no interest in letting corruption go unchecked. If there was rabble, Nachman would rouse it. If there was muck, he would rake it. And if there was a chance to talk about the Dixie Mafia, oh boy, he would talk about it. And just about anybody with any power in Greenville County wanted Ivan Nachman gone. He called me and wanted to talk to him, and I'd have to meet him in Pickens County to talk to him. He was so worried about the dumb asses here, because he, he was worried about what the sheriff's people was going to do. To this day, Nachman's a controversial character in the county's history, in part because he said he'd discovered just how corrupt the law enforcement community was. He did not make friends with Billy Wilkins, a man who had started his career as prosecutor just weeks before the Looper murders. And even with 44 years to think about it, Wilkins still doesn't like Nachman. That, I think, is one of the more important things that I studied was just how involved some of the members of law enforcement were. And I know that when you came in, there, you know, there was a guy, and you may or may not remember him, Ivan Nachman. Uh, okay, so I'm curious about your impressions of, of him. I, I never can tell in reading the paper whether he was just a muckraker or if he was actually helping. I couldn't tell. No, he wasn't helping at all. He was hired by Cash Williams, a one-term sheriff, I think, at least Williams professed that Nachman was somehow related to him, and because of that relationship, he had to hire him because he was getting so much criticism. Although the Greenville News gave Nachman a lot of ink because he was sensational. No matter whether Wilkins is right or wrong about how much Nachman helped, there's no denying Wilkins is right about one thing. Nachman didn't do much of anything quietly. He swept through Greenville County's corrupt cops and organized crime communities like a tornado through a cornfield. After all, it wasn't like he had to look very hard. Even Billy Wilkins would admit, his predecessor in the prosecutor's office, people called solicitors in South Carolina, didn't spend a lot of time working on corruption or organized crime. The solicitor was not interested in doing anything. The one-term solicitor I replaced, because back then the solicitor's office was really kind of a deal where 
you get elected and you use it to promote yourself for the next congressional race. And we've got past history that not that they weren't good people, it was not a, it was a real part-time job that was, the solicitors didn't work with law enforcement closely. They walked in the courtroom and handed a file, just winging it. There was no investigation and no concentration. Nevertheless, as Nachman started digging, he started coming up with a list of corrupt cops. He had Frank Walker doing a lot of stuff. He had Marsh Williams doing stuff. He had uh, several of them. Alexander. You've heard a couple of those names already. Frank Walker, the deputy-turned-contract killer, and Alexander, Danny Alexander, one of Jackie Delk's partners in the bungled people's drug heist. But there were more. A lot more. Nachman wasn't making many friends. But accusations? Those were his wheelhouse. And he was making all these wild accusations. He used to come to see me and say, if you do what I tell you, I'm going to make you the Attorney General of South Carolina. And I said, well, Ivan, I don't want to be the Attorney General of South Carolina, but anyway. Then somebody killed Frank Looper. And if Nachman was a fire, the Looper murders were a thousand gallons of gasoline. Nachman was one of America's biggest believers in the power of organized crime. And the Looper murders made him an even bigger firebrand. Nachman told a reporter on the day of the shooting, that Rufus and Frank Looper were casualties of war. In less than three months, the power structure of Greenville County was looking for ways to send Nachman anywhere but South Carolina. And private citizens were giving Nachman money to fund his investigation. That's what did him in. The head of the county council, Beth McPherson, declared to any reporter who would listen that Nachman was nothing more than a con man. And there's nothing to prove this part. But Leonard Brown says he knows the real story. Cash wanted to get rid of it, but he couldn't justify it. Cash got Notman to go to the courthouse and look for the records of the councilwoman, who's Beth McPherson. Got him to go up there and look for her, said she'd misusing funds and all this shit. So he got up there flying around in that, looking, wanting records and so forth. And then Cash calls Beth and tells Beth that this son of a bitch is even looking into you. So she gets calls the news conference and writes a big article about him being a con artist. And that's when Cash got rid of him. The Nockman story, the Greenville County version of it, goes on for a while, and it will come up again in Murder, Etc. But for now, it's worth noting, only six weeks after Frank Looper died, Nockman fled back to Florida. His time in Greenville County was short, but he managed to leave a legacy nonetheless. Billy Wilkins, although a bit grudgingly, had to acknowledge Nachman was a catalyst for Wilkins' eventual war on organized crime. So where was the line then between the corruption that was happening and the sensationalism that he was he was bringing forward? How would you characterize what was actually happening? Well, I guess Nachman did do some good because through his publicity-seeking activity, he began to publicly, the newspapers began to focus on the fact that we did have a criminal element here embedded in Greenville County that no one really was aware of. You know, the Dawson gang lived here. Well, that's because you got to live somewhere, you know, and, and that they didn't pick, but they may have picked Greenville County because of Bub Skelton, probably. But uh, any event. I'd uh, encourage you to listen sorry? to Wilkins' last few sentences there, because in a way they represent how Greenville itself slowly came to accept that it was a much different place than it wanted people to believe. After Nockman's tornado ripped through Greenville and flung all the secrets up in the air, Greenville County enjoyed a peculiar moment of clarity as reality crashed back down. Folks said Nockman was a con man, but his investigations turned people on to the reality of law enforcement corruption and organized crime. Folks said it was just a coincidence 
that the South's most notorious bank robbing gang ended up here, except for the fact that the gang came here specifically because Greenville County Lieutenant Bub Skelton had their back. Today, some people who were around in the 1970s have developed a more nuanced view of Greenville's past. Danette Green worked among city and county cops for 40 years, and she remembers what it was like when she hired on with Sheriff Bob Martin just out of high school. And that was just the status quo. That was the environment I was hired in. I didn't have to question it. And the pay wasn't really good, which might have had something to do with some of the wrongdoing that might have been done back in those days because the pay was awful. Those guys didn't work every little ball game, every little side job they could find. They couldn't make ends meet. And that's just the atmosphere. And Green, while admitting Cash Williams had his flaws, said she thought he was a good sheriff. I was young. I was, I was a kid. And I was still in training because I had just gone into the communications department as I found out I was pregnant with my first child. And I thought, okay, the sheriff's not going to let me go in here and work and be pregnant. (laughs) But he was very gracious. There was no danger, no no problems. So he had no problem with it. I thought, oh, Lord, he's not going to let me have the promotion to go in there. But he did. But Cash did two things that will always stand out in my mind. He got their pay up and he got more men on the road. Well, three things. And he got training instituted. He brought it toward the 20th century. I think he did a hard look at the city and where they were and what they were doing and learned a lot. He brought a lot of city officers over. And according to historian John Boynowski, Greenville's history also benefits from the 1976 election of Greenville County's longest serving sheriff. Greenville in the 70s was a much different place from a crime standpoint. We had a sheriff come in, Johnny Mac Brown. If there's anything Johnny Mac Brown did, he brought them up to standard. Johnny Mac Brown somehow navigated decades of politics. In 1976, he beat Cash Williams and became sheriff for the first time. He retired 24 years later, but today is sheriff again, this time appointed by the governor to clean up another sheriff's scandals. These days, Sheriff Brown will speak candidly about the mess he found when he took office in 1976. Bob Martin was a wonderful individual, but uh, he only came in the office at 10 o'clock in the morning and 4 o'clock in the afternoon because he had outside interest in this horse farm and raising horses. Cash Williams came in and had no idea what he was doing as far as law enforcement concerned. He was a trucking terminal uh, manager and uh, had no idea what was happening within the system of the sheriff's office because he didn't know. And that four years was a... uh, years of uh, everybody was sheriff instead of Cash Williams. They did what they wanted to do. But I could see from the outside as I did my job that people say, you know, the Greenville County Sheriff's Office, there's there's corruption. Whether or not there was, I don't know. But I know that uh, it slid and uh, had a grand jury and there were several sheriff's deputies indicted for misconduct in office. And so I think that gave me a leverage to to look at uh, the sheriff's office and say, It needs healing. Sheriff Brown is aged, and most people would say has gotten better, just like the county he started protecting in the mid-1970s. But even now, as a grandfather in his 80s, Brown remembers just how out of hand his hometown was when he first took office. One word, wild. It needed to be tamed. It wasn't a wild west, but it was wild. It was a lot of interesting times. Interesting times. You ever hear someone say, May he live in interesting times? People will tell you that's a Chinese curse. A curse because it's the bad times people consider interesting. Turns out there is no such Chinese curse. Everyone just thinks there is. It's one of those things that if repeated often enough by the right people, becomes something everyone accepts as fact. In January 1975, Sheriff Cash Williams said Greenville County didn't have a Dixie Mafia problem, only a bunch of amateur crooks. 
a week after Frank Looper died, one of the lead detectives on the case, Mike Bridges, told a reporter police had already completely ruled out the possibility a hitman killed the Loopers, saying, quote, I'll tell you one thing. If it was a hitman, he did a hell of a good job making it look amateurish. It's hard to say exactly what's amateurish about killing two people, one of them an armed cop, by putting exactly one bullet in each of their heads in exactly the same spot. But that's what 27-year-old detective Mike Bridges said. Cash Williams was older than Bridges, but remarkably, less experienced. How long have you been in office now? Two and a half long years. Two and a half long years. All right, prior to this, you, you had no real law enforcement experience, did you? That's right. All right, what has been your biggest surprise in that two and a half long years? Well, I think probably the fact that I was so naive to how much crime was going on in Greenville County. Leonard Brown's son listened to that interview with Cash Williams, and over the years, the younger Brown has settled on a philosophy. People are going to believe what they want to believe until they're forced to confront the truth. And even then, they still may refuse to open their eyes wide enough to see the picture in front of them. Oh, there's, there's such a big picture here. It's a big, big picture. It's a panorama. It really is. And a lot of people wouldn't believe it. People who were around then didn't believe it. It didn't affect their daily lives. The big picture is sometimes hard to believe. Like an M.C. Escher sketch, the big picture is often an illusion. Greenville County ran internal affairs officer Ivan Nachman out of town for good. Disillusioned, he quit trying to be a professional law enforcement officer. He changed his name to Ryan Quaid Emerson, and you can't make this stuff up, became a controversial undercover double agent. He worked from the inside of the organization of conspiracy theorist and fringe presidential candidate Lyndon LaRouche, while at the same time working as an informant for the FBI as it investigated LaRouche. LaRouche's people called it a witch hunt, which might sound like a familiar phrase, especially when you find out the LaRouche investigation was run by U.S. Attorney Robert Mueller. Some pictures are just too weird to believe. Showing them damn naked pictures of the sheriff and he was going to... Leonard Brown Sr. spent his life hoping people would see the big picture. And there are people all over Greenville County just like him. Those who believe it might be time to take that huge picture of 1970s Greenville out of storage and give it a closer look. 45 years ago, if regular folks wanted to look closely at a picture, they needed a magnifying glass. Today, we can spread our fingers across a phone screen and pan an image pixel by pixel. We can zoom in all the way to the night of January 3rd, 1975. Me and Dexter had been on Pack Street fooling around. Pull up a map on your phone and find Greenville's Pack Street. That's where Charles Wakefield is taking up for his cousin on the night of January 3rd, getting in the fight that gave police a reason to arrest him four weeks later. Now drag your finger across the map half an inch, five miles away, to Berea, where on that exact same night, Deputy Danny Alexander is listening to his police radio to make sure an honest deputy doesn't stumble on the drugstore break-in. If you zoom in closer to the top of People's Drugstore, you'll see the infamous Jackie Delk climbing up to the roof and cutting a hole in it. And if you remember, I told you Delk was part of a two-man team on the building. So maybe you want to zoom in as far as you can to see the face of the other burglar, a guy named Raymond Bugs Hassey. Country pulls out a sawed-off shotgun and just jams it in Hassey's ribs and pulls the trigger. Frank Walker's got a 22 shooting him in the back of the head. 
because there's blood everywhere. If Bugs Hassey sounds familiar, it's because a few episodes back he was bleeding out in the front seat of a car and getting dumped on Paris Mountain just weeks after the botched drugstore burglary. Killed by two paid hitmen, Country Small and former Greenville County Deputy Frank Walker. When the cops found Bugs Hassey's body, they also found his personal address book. Today, that'd be like finding his iPhone unlocked, showing every one of his contacts, the people important to his life and his work. Someone told the newspaper Hassey was part of the Dixie Mafia. And Jackie Delk? But Jackie had a lot of connection with a whole lot of people. Well, if you kept your phone zoomed all the way in and watched when Jackie and Bugs went running into the night with that burglar alarm wailing behind them, you'll see what Jackie Delk didn't. Jackie forgot to pick up his knapsack. When investigators picked it up later, they found Jackie's wallet with his driver's license inside it. And guess what else they found? They found what amounted to Jackie Delk's unlocked phone, too. They had Jackie's address book. The investigating officer wrote in his report that Jackie's book contained, quote, a number of well-known names. Remember that warning at the top of the show about how it's going to be hard to keep track of everyone? Well, this is where that happens. The short version is this. Four weeks before someone murdered Greenville County's top drug cop, infamous drug dealer Jackie Delk and reputed Dixie Mafia thief Bugs Hassey set out to steal a bunch of drugs to sell to the community. They had a dirty Greenville County deputy serving as their lookout. Four weeks later, drug cop Frank Looper was dead. Three weeks after that, Bugs Hassey was dead too. Dead at the hands of two professional killers. One who had been a deputy three months earlier. That's the short version. The long version you'll hear about in future episodes. But here's a preview of the big picture. Frank Walker, the deputy turned hitman, had a really good buddy. A friend so fine, Walker would even help him break out of prison. That friend was drug thief, drug dealer, and Dixie Mafia associate, Jackie Delk. After zooming in so closely on that picture, it's worth pulling all the way back to see the big picture again. Then listen to what old Leonard Brown said to me one day. Get into all this shit. You, you can't see all that happening on the deal. See, you can't see the whole story. Which, well, I was right in the middle of it, so I knew about the whole story. They all connected some damn way or another. Thanks to Leonard Brown Sr. and his son, Leonard Brown Jr., for finding that old recording of Cash Williams and putting in the work to share it with you. And just to reiterate what I said at the top of the show, while this might sound like an old-time radio show, we're not stuck in the 1970s. We have phones that can zoom in on pictures, and we have a website that's a vital part of this show. If you're having a hard time with the spider web of connections between the crooks and the cops of 1975, go to MurderEtcPodcast.com, where we have resources to make it a lot easier. Finally, you could do Murder Etc. a big favor by taking the time today to share the show on social media and then going to Apple Podcasts and writing a review for the show. We'll be back next week with a whole new episode.